If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Wins and Losses with Clay Travis. Clay talks with the most entertaining people in sports, entertainment, and business. Now, here's Clay Travis. Welcome in, Wins and Losses podcast. Appreciate all of you listening to us, the most recent Wins and Losses podcast that just went up a few days ago. Bob Costas, if you've been a longtime sports fan, you can check it out. I think you will enjoy that examination of sports broadcasting and more. And now we are embarking on the 36th, I believe is the number, Wins and Losses podcast. And we are joined now uh, by Tommy Laren. And I'm hoping that I don't screw up anything when it comes to the pronunciation of her name because I know it has been a ongoing battle for you in the world of, uh, of rap songs, if nothing else. And we'll get to that maybe in a little bit. But you now live in Nashville. Nashville, Tommy, and I'm curious, how have you found Nashville to be as a city to live in? Obviously, right now, we're in the grips of ridiculousness surrounding the pandemic, and that's kind of the case anywhere in the country, but what have you found it to be like in Nashville? Do you like it? I love Nashville, but I also fled from Los Angeles, so I do feel like somewhat of a refugee here in the South. I got away from California. I actually moved right at the beginning of April, so in the height of the pandemic, I was smart enough to get the heck out of California. I love Nashville. It is a blue city, as you and I both know, and I came in here guns blazing. I don't think people on the left love it so much that I'm so critical of the mayor, but I tell them, if I've lived here for one day or I've lived here for a year or five years, I'm always going to hold my elected leaders accountable, and we should all be doing that. All right, so you are so right off the top, you and I uh, know each other. We've gotten to know each other as you've moved to Nashville What I admire in general is fearlessness, right? And you are incredibly fearless, especially at such a young age. So I want to dive into how you got to the place where you are now, which is an influential, I think it's fair to say, firebrand in the world of the social media universe and the fact that you can take the heat and you seem to enjoy the heat. But before we get to all that, I don't feel like your background is really that well known and I'm kind of fascinated by it. So let's let's start. You're you're still young, but you're obviously very influential. But you were born and raised, I believe I've got this right, in South Dakota, correct? Yes. So in that middle America where us forgotten Americans are, that a lot of times we're referred to as a flyover state, middle class family, only child, Rapid City, South Dakota. A lot of people probably wouldn't even know of it at all if it weren't for Mount Rushmore and the president addressing the nation on Fourth uh, of July from Mount Rushmore. But yes, that is where I'm from, and I've lived about everywhere since then. All right, so let's go back to you growing up in South Dakota. I have never been to South Dakota. I bet most of our listeners have not been either. What is it like to grow up in South Dakota? 
Well, South Dakota, a lot of people don't know how beautiful it is. And as my dad always says, we don't really need them to know how beautiful it is because then we get an influx of liberals coming to bring their liberal policies to South Dakota like they've done in Wyoming and Montana and a lot of other uh, great Midwestern states. But being in South Dakota, honestly, it's just a lot of hardworking people, a lot of people farming, ranching, blue-collar people who don't really want anything from anybody but just want to be left the hell alone. That's what I grew up with. That's the family I was raised in, and that has a lot to do with what I do now. What was it? So you go to high school. What kind of high school do you go to? And were you political? Was there a moment in time, an election that you remember thinking, oh, this really piqued my interest? How would you assess your interest in political issues and where it came from? Well, I was in fourth grade when September 11th happened, and that was obviously a big moment. And I remember watching the news. I don't think a lot of kids my age were really watching the news daily in fourth grade. But I've always done it, not just on September 11th, but I would do it all the time. I watched the news every single night. It was important to me. And I've always been political because I always felt like the news got it wrong. I always felt like watching the mainstream media. My, my family would always watch ABC News. I felt like they got a lot wrong about half this country. And they just kind of forgot about half this country. They cater to the coast, maybe Chicago. But everybody in the middle, they got everything wrong when it came to agriculture, when it came to gun rights, when it just came to average people in the Midwest. I felt like they just kind of glossed over us. So that always made me political. And even in South Dakota, which is a conservative red state, and God willing, it will always be a conservative red state, I still went to public school. I still had teachers that were liberal. I still had teachers that, believe it or not, would make white students feel like we had something to apologize for. I mean, all the things that kids are going through now, I still went through even being in South Dakota. So I thought back. I don't know why that's just been ingrained in me, but I've always thought back. So you went K through 12 to public school in South Dakota? Yes, sir, I did. Uh, all right. So in South Dakota, did you grow up? And I, again, like, were you on land? Were you out on your own? Were you in a, a neighborhood with homes close by? And were your parents particularly political? So I grew up out of town, 12 miles out of town, I suppose. And quite honestly, all my friends lived in town and I lived out in the country. So you learn to be around adults and you learn to entertain yourself. I found news and politics very interesting. But yeah, I kind of grew up out of town and that probably has a lot to do with it i had to find other ways to entertain myself i would actually watch the view uh, anytime i had a chance interesting how that worked out but (laughs) i think i just started having opinions very early because of what i watched on tv did you want brothers and sisters when you were growing up absolutely not so you you were you loved being an only child yes People ask me all the time if I would like to have a brother or sister. I tried that one time. I had a foreign exchange student. did so well. <laughs> I really love just being an only child. So where was the foreign exchange student from? She was from Spain. And, uh, you know, great girl. But when you're used to having your own space, uh, having somebody live in your house for a year and call your parents mom and dad, like, this really wasn't my thing. But I learned a lot from that experience, that's for sure. So, all right, like when you were in high school, um, you said you went K through 12 public school. Were you political in high school? Like if people were in your high school graduating class, how big was it? Is it like a big school, small school? How many people would have graduated with you? I think that class was almost 400. So it was big. We only had really two major high schools. And I was always political. I was a student council, school board. All of it. I so they would be not be surprised all at all by, by the fact that you are in the political arena right now. They would have totally seen this coming. Oh, yeah. I, I think I was voted most likely to be president. Now, I really have no desire to be president, but I've always been this way. I've always been political. It's not something that I stumbled upon. I know that there are a lot of conservatives right now, especially young conservatives, who started out liberal and then they came to be conservative. That was never me. I've always been red. I remember having a um, McCain-Palin sticker on my car in high school. Yes, I did like John McCain at one point. He was better than the alternative, (laughs) maybe. And uh, I would argue with people about it. I really have never cared. I've always been someone that's going to stand up for my beliefs. 
Uh, so you graduate from high school and you make the decision to go all the way to UNLV for college. How and why did you make that decision? I'm kind of an unconventional type of person. And I thought, what is the most unconventional place I can go from South Dakota? Las Vegas was it. I mean, Had you been to, to Las Vegas before? I had a couple of times because when you live in South Dakota, there's not a whole lot of places you can get to quickly, but Vegas is one of those places and it's a two hour flight, like a cheap flight. So I thought this is good. I can be two hours from home, but I want to go somewhere where people are way different than I am that come from all different backgrounds. As much as people might not uh, believe it, I do appreciate diversity and I like to be around it because I learn from it. So I thought, Hey, where's the weirdest place I can go and go to college in Las Vegas was it. So you go to Las Vegas. Did you have an idea when you went to Las Vegas that you were going to work in media, or how did that happen? Yeah, I was a journalism student in political science, and I always knew I wanted to do that. I'm one of those kids that thought in their mind, I'm going to be a TV host on conservative news, and that's what I want to do. And that's been my laser focus for a very long time. So I was ready to do that. And I learned a lot in Las Vegas. I mean, there's a lot of places you can learn things, but maybe the weirdest is Las Vegas. And you learn to uh, get your common sense and your street skills pretty fast. So when you're in Las Vegas, do you have a job while you're working there, while you're in school? What's your day-to-day existence? And, And did you guys, and I don't know the answer to this, what is the average UNLV kid like? I mean, you guys are right there on the strip. Is Vegas a seductive place to go spend time in casinos and around the club scene? What's the average student life like at UNLV? So a lot of my friends did work in the casinos or at the pool. I mean, in Las Vegas, it was esteemed to be like a cabana host or a bottle girl. You can make a lot of money. Yeah. Oh, you can make a lot of money, but it was almost that was almost more important, in fact, than you could say that you were, you know, going to be a doctor or a lawyer. But if you were a cabana host at the win, that was seen <laughs> as a much higher price. Yes. And that's what Vegas was like. I had friends that worked from ten at night until five in the morning and really didn't go to class. And but they didn't feel like they had to because they were making a ton of money on this trip. I really didn't have that luxury. I didn't turn twenty one until my senior year. So I worked in retail. And I didn't really have the luxury of going out and partying because I had to pay rent. That was that was my life. I went to school. I worked. Then I got off work and I did school work. And then I got up and went to school and then went to work. That's where did you I work in retail? I worked at Express, the clothing store. <laughs> so you were while you were at UNLV, you worked at Express and you're making what, like seven or eight dollars an hour? I don't even think it was that. Yeah, it was something around that. It was it was minimum wage. Um, and I will tell anybody, if you want a humbling experience and you want to build character, work retail. Yes. And even better, work retail in Las Vegas, where people aren't that nice and people, quite frankly, don't really care about you. I remember working at Express and people walking in the door and me greeting them and them just looking at me like I had three eyes. Like it was, they didn't understand why I would even say hello and smile. And that was so different from the way I grew up in South Dakota, but it taught me a lot. It's interesting. When I was in college at uh, at GW up in D.C., I worked in the uh, Abercrombie and Fitch, uh, which is a ridiculous job to have. But uh, <laughs> but I worked there uh, in Pentagon City Mall. I would take the subway from GW to the Pentagon City Mall in Northern Virginia. And what was interesting about while I worked there was they were doing the Monica Lewinsky investigation. Like the Pentagon City Mall, for people out there who are not familiar with it, is a big, and I'm assuming it's still a popular mall in the D.C. area, but also it's where Marv Albert, allegedly, there's a Ritz-Carlton there. It's where Marv Albert, the legendary NBA announcer, allegedly put on, uh, I don't think it's alleged, I think he admitted it, he liked to wear women's underwear and bite women. That happened at the, uh, that was his big thing. Uh, And he still got to come back and call NBA games, which is one of the all-time great, unbelievable comebacks in the history of sports. Like, everybody just forgets that Marv Albert uh, would put on women's underwear and bite women, and that was like his thing. And then it's also where they confronted Monica Lewinsky to begin the Clinton scandals. So I remember reading all about that, the restaurant, if I remember correctly, where they took her to try to offer her uh, the ability to uh, to testify against Bill Clinton was, I believe, visible from where I worked at that Abercrombie & Fitch. So uh, this was a illustrious location. But 
it is. And at the same time, I also was interning on Capitol Hill. And to your point, being at the very bottom of the rung as it pertains to very hierarchical cities, like uh, I would say Vegas and D.C. are both that way where, you know, it's very top down. If you're wealthy and you're fortunate and you have position of power, you're in a different esteem and you're, you have different uh, different levels of, of acclaim, I would say, more so than in most cities. It was definitely a, a place where you got used to the fact that uh, that you could be forgotten, for lack of any other uh, word. And I made, I remember it was the most money I'd made at the time. I was making $7 an hour working uh, in the Abercrombie and Fitch back then, which seemed like a lot because I was making five twenty-five dollars uh, to work back home in Nashville. All right, so you got the job at Express. You're majoring in journalism. What... When did you start to realize? Because what I like to tell people is television is a skill. Video is a skill. You have to develop a skill to do it well. You have the ability to do it well. Was that something that was innate in some level? Or did you find that there were people you could emulate who did it well? How did you become good at television and at conveying your opinions on video? I really learned how to write well in school, but talking to a camera in a very matter-of-fact way, I think I started doing that to just like a camcorder when I was maybe five, six, seven, eight, nine years old. I remember my cousin and I would host cooking shows just to a camera with Play-Doh, and oh, I would love to host shows. That's what I just, I've always loved to do. I've always loved to talk to a camera. And when you're an only child and you live kind of far out of town, you learn to talk to yourself. And you learn to talk to the mirror a lot and have an opinion. And that really is where I got this from. And I actually pride myself. I think you and I are similar in this. Um, we speak regular, and that's where I grew up. So I don't try to talk over people's heads. I try to talk like people talk, sometimes to the dismay of a lot of people in media. But I will swear I won't use correct English sometimes, not that I don't know what it is. But I like to talk regular because I think it's more relatable. And I've just always been that way. So I can be like a trained journalist and know how to write and know how to do TV in a news way. But that's never really what I wanted to do. I always just wanted to kind of be me. So it's interesting. I want to unpack a little bit of what you said there. For people out there who are listening, my goal early on, I decided that I wanted my voice to sound the same, whether you were reading a written article that I did, whether you were listening to me on radio, whether you're listening to me on this podcast. And for that to be a voice that was relatable to a large audience. And almost like I've always admired, and this certainly came from, from law school, the ability of a great attorney to break down for a jury a really complex subject, but in a way that everybody can understand, whether you're a janitor or a neurosurgeon, there's a depth of knowledge there. And I think one way to develop depth of knowledge is by doing your own writing. And so you write your own takes. There are people out there, I'm sure, who you see all the time who criticize you and say, oh, she's just reading glass. She's just reading what somebody else is telling her to say. She's a performance artist. But you are coming up with all of your own takes and writing them daily, which takes a lot of discipline. When did that start? When did you start to develop that discipline of writing your own takes and then recording them? Well, I've always done it. I've always been a writer. I've always enjoyed writing. But for me, nobody can really speak like I speak. And so if somebody puts something in a teleprompter that I have not written, I don't do well with it because it's not in my voice. And you and I are very similar in that. What you said is I really do write like I speak. So I, the way that I write on and put it in that teleprompter is the way that I'm going to say it. And it's just my own style. And I write my final thoughts every single day. And I like to be sassy and sarcastic. And sometimes I sit here in my home in Nashville, Tennessee, and just laugh at myself for the funny joke I made about Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden. And I love to do that. I love to poke fun, and I love to write in a way that's serious but also kind of sarcastic. And I love the instant gratification of being able to put that out there and watch people watch it and see the views. That is like crack cocaine to me. What was the first thing you did? Was it at UNLV that you remember got some attention in the opinion space? Do you remember the very first thing that, that maybe cut through the audience and started to get attention? Well, uh, my first job was when I was 21 years old. I worked at One American News, and people really weren't familiar with One American News. Now they are because the president has kind of given them a shout-out. So how did you get that gig? That was my first show. 
How did you get that gig? I called and asked for an internship. I was supposed to get an internship at The Blaze, and then that didn't work out. So I started calling conservative news outlets, and I found One America News, and I just called and asked for an internship, and they said, we don't give internships, but you can come in and talk, and I said, sure. And I had to call a few times before I finally got to talk to the right person, but I was persistent, and I just wanted a shot. And for a lot of people, they don't get the internship they want, or they don't get the job that they want, and they boo-hoo and cry in the corner and feel sorry for themselves and move back in with mom and dad. I was never going to do that because that really wasn't an option. I'm not going back to South Dakota, so I'm going to find somewhere to go when I graduate, and I found One American News, which is quirky and kooky and a very interesting place to work. But I was 21 years old, and he said, hey, I'm going to give you your own show, so make sure you go write it. And um, you're not really going to have a producer, but just um, do what you will with it. So and that what, was my marching orders. That is pretty uh, insane. All right, so 21 years old, who is the person who makes the decision that you can work at OAN, and what did that first show look like? It was the owner of One American News, uh, <laughs> Mr. H, as we call him, Robert Herring, <laughs> a really nice older man who sometimes wasn't nice, but he gave me a shot. He saw something in me that, I guess nobody else would have really seen at 21 years old. Not many people would be given their own show. But I cracked a couple of Obama jokes with him, and he thought I was articulate. And we had a great conversation, and I think he just kind of thought I can do it, so I will. And he gave me the opportunity to do that show. And it was called On Point with Tommy Laren, and we did it. And I had to just st- search my own guests. I would find him on Twitter, ask him to come on. And I always did a segment at the end of the show called Final Thoughts. And sometimes we would take those final thoughts and we'd put them up on YouTube or Facebook. And that's kind of what I'm known for now. So when did you, so when did you do your very first show for uh, One American News OAN? Boy, uh, it was right before my 22nd birthday. Um, yeah, it was August of, I guess that would have been 2014. Uh, and then when I really went viral, though, is I did final thoughts after the attack, the terrorist attack in Chattanooga and Obama's leadership. I had, my boyfriend at the time was a Navy SEAL and he was overseas. And I remember just being so angry and so upset at the failed leadership of Barack Obama and the danger he was putting our troops in by tying their hands. And I just went off. And that was my first viral moment when everything kind of clicked and people knew who I was and started hating me at the same time. So what is that like? Because you're young. I mean, and and so you're 21, about 22. You start doing this video in August of 2014. And what I always say is there's lots of people who say they want to be in media, but in social media in particular, that comes with a degree of hate and sometimes love that most people frankly can't manage right and so your comments my comments anybody in media who is particularly opinionated I always say it's a little bit like taking a small dose of poison every day and you just develop a tolerance for it that would kill your average person right because every now and then somebody comes into the arena and they say they want to be you know in the same business and then They look at their mentions after they say something opinionated and they just immediately retreat and they don't have any interest for it. What was it like for you? Because one of the things that's fascinating is you manage your own social media accounts, your own Instagram accounts, your own Twitter accounts, your Facebook accounts, everything else. How did you get used to handling the degree of vitriol that could come at you on social media? I think it may have bothered me for a couple of days, but quite frankly, I was much more interested in the comments that I got from people in the military, in law enforcement, from, you know, that middle American silent majority that I grew up in and saying, thank you for saying what we wanted to say. I pay far more attention to that than I do the haters in the backlash. I know a lot of people say that they don't care what people think. I promise you, Clay, I don't care what these people think. I really don't. When When they say awful things about me, it's like, well, I must have struck a nerve. And... At the end of the day, in my business, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to intentionally be a shock jock. I mean everything that I say. But if someone doesn't like it, listen, I do political commentary for a living. If you like everything that I'm saying, there's a problem. 
so it's never really bothered me. I have a, a rhino thick skin, and at this point, it's so conditioned. I know you're used to this as well that I, I just don't care anymore. Be sure to catch live editions of Outkick the Coverage with Clay Travis weekdays at 6 a.m. Eastern, 3 a.m. Pacific. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic Gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So, listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and challenge all-star. And speaking of all-stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of challenge champion. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So this is fascinating to me because my wife says that's my superpower and it doesn't seem to me like a lot of people claim that they don't care, but I I just really don't care, you know, and and I don't really understand why that is. And we're talking, this is wins and losses and we're talking with Tommy Loren. Tommy, like, why do you think we have that? Right. Like, is there something wrong with us? Because I, I think it's a positive for what we do in the universe in which we're in. And I think being opinionated and being willing to say exactly what you think and being fearless, regardless of what the motivation behind it is politically or or or, or you know, basically any opinion base. Have you really sat down? Because every now and then I'll get asked that and I'll sit down and I'll try to deconstruct it. But it's not something that I have created It's just the way I think that I've always kind of been. And the answer that I give is, I think going away to college on the East Coast for me was big because there were so many total assholes on the East Coast. And I grew up in the South and everybody was pretty nice. You know, that was something that you kind of got used to. You live in Nashville now. As a general rule, I think the city of Nashville is filled with a lot of friendly people. And I thought I was pretty friendly. And then I went to D.C. and spent a lot of time around East Coast kids and they were total assholes. And I think it did toughen me up a lot. I think I was kind of a pussy when I went away to school, like many people are when they're like 18 or 19 years old. And like, do you think that that going to Vegas, which is kind of a tough town, did it for you? Or do you think we're actually just that's our personalities and it just kind of reveals itself? I spend a lot of time because I do think it's the single most valuable attribute. Work hard is number one. Number two is you can't allow people to get in your head and bother you and I think those are the two most valuable attributes to success in a media age now. 
Absolutely. And there probably is something wrong with us. I I don't know what it is. But I do think that there are a select group of people in this country, especially on the right or that are more conservative or even independent, just not in the leftist mob. There needs to be some of us who have that. Because if there weren't, we'd be completely drowned out. There has to be some people that are, I don't even want to call it brave because I don't like to use the word brave, that just don't care and don't give any Fs, I think there needs to be some of us. Because if there's not, then our side is not represented. So well, I take it as a badge of honor. If, I'm, if I need to be the one that's controversial enough to say blue lives matter and stick up for law enforcement and love the flag and believe that our nation needs to have a border and that gun rights are important, if that makes me hated by some people, I'm pretty okay with that. Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com. And within the iHeartRadio app, search FSR to listen live. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades I am a veteran challenger and challenge all-star. And speaking of all-stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of Challenge Champion. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're talking to Tommy Loren. This is Wins and Losses podcast. I'm Clay Travis. All right, so... You're at OAN. You start to have some success. What happens next? Well, then I was kind of faced with a decision if I was going to stay there and kind of just stay in my comfort zone. And it was in San Diego, a beautiful place to live, or I was going to do something different. I really feel like I capped out my potential there, and it would have been comfortable to stay there. They offered me you know, a three-year contract for quite a bit of money when you're 22 years old and that's your first job. It was quite a bit of money and comfortable, but I just didn't want to be comfortable. I always want to challenge myself. And I think for me, that's the biggest thing I always ask myself is what's next. Cause I never want to feel stagnant. And so the opportunity presented itself for me to go to the blaze. Fox news wasn't quite ready for me yet. I was too young. I understand. So I took that jump and that leap and moved to Dallas and started my show at the blaze. So what happens in Dallas? What do you do at the Blaze that's different than OAN? That's when I first met you. 
uh, I went on your show a couple of times, and I remember being like, man, this girl is pretty fearless, right? And uh, and so you were in Dallas, and we overlapped with friends there in Dallas. Uh, I think you uh, got into the sports circuit a little bit. You knew some of the, the, the Cowboys and some of the, the people in, in that universe, and we started to overlap there a little bit with sports. But And certainly the Colin Kaepernick uh, issues all start to arise, and sports becomes intensely political. So that's how we initially met. What kind of success did you have at the Blaze, and how was it different than what might have been happening at OAN? I had a, a lot of fun at the Blaze uh, because that was in the height of the 2016 election. And believe it or not, even though I worked at a conservative news network, I was the only Trump supporter on air. Everyone else in that building hated Donald Trump. Glenn Beck himself had a deep hatred for Donald Trump. He was the quintessential never-Trumper, and everybody else in that building was too. And now they'll try to deny it. They'll try to pretend that they were on that Trump train. They weren't. It was just me. And so I was at that conservative network being the only Trump supporter, and I had so much fun during that election. And then, of course, we had um, Beyonce's Super Bowl performance. I did some final thoughts about that, landed my voice in a Jay-Z song. (laughs) Then, of course, we had Colin Kaepernick, did some final thoughts about that pissed a lot of people off. And then we had the election of Donald Trump. So that was really one of the greatest times in my career. I had so much fun doing it. And, you know, I would have Nightline come and interview me at my house. And it was a great time uh, until it all abruptly ended. (laughs) So I'm going to go back to election night. Did you expect Trump to win? Like deep down, I'm not talking about publicly where some people feel, you know, like, oh, I'm supporting this guy. So I don't want to say anything negative about his chances. Were you surprised or did you think that he was going to win that night in 2016? I thought it could go either way. Of course, we know that the polls are telling us there was no shot in hell. That night I felt good, but when the state started coming in and we started winning, it was amazing. I remember sitting there with Glenn Beck, by the way, who told everybody if they were going to come do coverage to bring something to calm their nerves, and he sat in the back and painted with a smock on and was painting watercolor like a weirdo. And I remember sitting here thinking, I'm the only one in this room that wants this president to win. I'm at a conservative news network, and they're sitting here crying when states are coming in for Trump. And I just remember laughing. I thought it was the funniest thing. They were so angry, so bitter at me. I didn't care. I had a great night. And then um, middle of the night, Glenn just got up and left. He couldn't even stomach it anymore. And I remember he told somebody in the control room, don't let Tommy take this over. And I'm thinking, well, hey, I'm sorry that I was right and you all were wrong, but it's a great night for me and it's a great night for America. All right. So then how much longer are you at the Blaze? So I was at the Blaze until uh, middle of March. And then I went on this little show called The View. (laughs) And uh, I expressed the fact that I am pro-choice because I believe in limited government. Not the most conservative thing to say. However, I believe that it's one of the most conservative things you can say to believe in limited government. But either way, I thought it was great. I remember thinking it was going to be a bloodbath if I'd been on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. And I thought, oh, boy, these women are just going to lose their minds. They're going to hate me. It's going to be another bloodbath situation. But it wasn't. And it was very respectful. And I thought I did a great job. I got a lot of great messages from even people at The Blaze. And uh, then... It all went to hell, and I found out this was on a Friday, uh, and on Monday, I found out that um, they had fired me, and they had suspended my show, and that's when the real fun began. So you got fired and suspended for saying that you were pro-choice. Do you think that's what it was? That's what it was. They said that I offended the community. So as a political commentator, which, by the way, I had a profile in the New York Times where I said I was pro-choice, and I think I said it on my show probably at least once a month that I believed in limited government and I don't care what you do with your life. I just don't want to pay for it. I'd said that often, but this was Glenn's way of getting me out. He thought, okay, she was just right about this election. I was a never Trumper. Trump is now our president. Uh, He's kind of looking foolish. So we thought, what is the way that I can turn everyone against her and get rid of her? Oh, I know. I'll say that she offended the community and she's not a real conservative. That was his out. That's what he did. And uh, he thought I would just go away quietly. Apparently wasn't paying too close of attention to the kind of person I am. All right. So this to me is fascinating because I think if you believe 100% in any political party, you aren't actually using your brain, 
right? And I think if you agree 100% with any president, you aren't actually using your brain. And I'm not even sure if I were president of the United States that I would agree with me 100% because so many of the choices that have to be made are hard. And if you sit there and weigh the different angles, you might change your opinion over the course of four years based on the data that's put in front of you, right? So um, so when I saw that, that you were getting a lot of flack for saying that you were pro-choice, I actually thought, well, this makes me even more impressed because if you have an audience that likes you, sometimes you can get seduced into only telling things that you think they're all going to agree with you on, right? Like that's that's sort of the affirmation cycle that you can find yourself in. But it's fundamentally dishonest because there are things that many people who are listening to this right now that they hear, they're like, oh, I don't agree with Clay. Like I'm pretty straightforward about many different things. I, I'm pro-choice like you are, not because, and by the way, that's with a family of three. I just, I, I find it, unbelievable to think that if I had a 14 year old daughter let's say and she got pregnant that the government would mandate one way or the other about the choice that she would have to make at 14 years old or I've got three boys if one of them had a girlfriend and they got pregnant I think the idea that a government would swoop in and say hey you have to make this choice is just wrong. That's my opinion. I understand that other people might disagree with it. But when I saw that quote from you, I was like, well, this is fascinating. Um, And then it ultimately ends up in a legal battle and you find your way to Fox News, which is probably where you wanted to be when you started at OAN. So it ended up working out okay for you what is has been the fallout since then uh, as as in terms of whether or not you're allowed to be conservative and have opinions that aren't conservative <laughs> orthodoxy? You know, that's what bothers me about some some conservatives, not all, but some conservatives who think we all have to fit into this little box. That's not human nature to fit into that box. And I'll tell you this. There are so many girls that I talk to, young girls who will message me and they say, you know, Tommy, I really like what you say, but I don't know how I can vote Republican or I don't know how I can vote for Donald Trump because, you know, I'm pro-choice and I'm okay with same-sex marriage. So I, I have to be a liberal. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. As conservatives, we're doing a disservice to ourselves and our country and our party by telling people that are, you know, okay with LGBT or pro-LGBT community or pro-choice, that they don't fit into our box. That's just not how it is. I'd rather have a fiscal conservative who believes in securing, believes in low taxes and freedom than fitting into this little box. So I, you know, I get flack from it a lot of times. I have people, you know, you've had guests on your show. I One, uh, one of our probably new national residents very shortly, Ben Shapiro, who constantly says that I'm not a conservative and I can't be in the conservative party and I'm not, you know, welcome at the table. And that doesn't bother me either. I don't care if liberals hate me. I don't care if conservative hates me. I'm just going to be me either way. And so at Fox News, what has your role been there? So I helped launch our digital streaming platform, Fox Nation, which you're going to join me on very shortly. But I've been able to do my final thoughts commentary every day, but also do long-form episodes. I've gone to the border several times. I get to sit down with interesting people like yourself and have longer-form conversations, and it's put up on a digital platform, kind of like a Netflix for Fox News. And so that's what I've been doing at Fox for about three years now and still getting into plenty of trouble on Twitter. (laughs) So uh, you are outspoken on Twitter I am outspoken on Twitter. One of the reasons why I love owning OutKick is, and this is why I started OutKick now, it's been nine years ago, was I I understand the way that big corporate media works. And many times, and I can imagine now because I am a boss and we have a lot of different employees, you've got a billion things that you're trying to take care of. And every now and then one of your talents sends out a tweet and you get complaints about it or you get media inquiries about it. And you're like, why won't he or she just shut up? I hate to sound like the man, but I understand that perspective. But I'm also on the talent side pretty firmly where, and everybody out there who, who is listening to this knows that I'm a First Amendment absolutist, that I believe in the marketplace of ideas, and I am horribly troubled, more so by probably anything, by this constraining of what ideas are able to be shared. And I think COVID and everything surrounding it 
has put this entire there's an appropriate opinion to have and an inappropriate opinion to have on steroids. Have you gotten that sense too that even after Trump wins in 2016 and everybody's like, oh, we need to listen to everybody's opinion and everything else, that it feels like every day and every week and every month and certainly every year, the allowable uh, comments on social media are getting more and more constrained and therefore the opinions are becoming more and more constrained and so are the debates. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I just saw today on Twitter there still trying to say that voting by mail is safer and more secure than voting in person, something that I am adamantly against. But I've had my experience with being shadow banned on social media. Just last week, I posted a picture with a a Trump cup and I asked my friends, hey, did you see this in your feed? And they said, no, I didn't see it. I didn't see it on any of my accounts. And I started asking people on social media, did you see this post? And I got hundreds and hundreds of messages. No, I don't see this in my feed. In fact, I don't see a lot of your stuff in my feed anymore. Big tech is taking this election to a new extreme, and they're going to try to drown out conservatives and Trump supporting voices under the guise of election integrity or whatever they want to call it. And it's just going to get worse, I believe, after he wins. But the sad thing is, is social media is kind of our best resource right now. You th- so and obviously the New York Post story, Hunter Biden, the way that it was covered, it, it really I think opened a lot of people's ideas to the marketplace being constrained. Now you manage your own Facebook accounts, you manage your Instagram accounts, you manage your Twitter accounts. For people out there who may not be as active on social media, how would you describe the interactions that you get on those different accounts and? How would you break down the effectiveness of each of them in terms of sharing your content with them as someone who does all that management herself, which is really pretty incredible? And how big are those audiences for you now? Well, on Twitter, I got about 1.7 million. Facebook's about 4.9 million. And Instagram's 1.8 million. So I've been blessed to have a lot of those followers that have been following me for years and following my career. But I mean, I don't even look at the mentions from people without blue check marks, but the mentions just from people with blue check marks to me are vile and somehow appropriate. I mean, last week during uh, the final debate coverage, people didn't like what I tweeted. And so they're asking why I'm still alive with blue check marks. But, you know, that's okay on Twitter. But anything that I say, I uh, I get reports about, and apparently it's beyond the pale. Um, We all know it's happening. We all know it's never going to be fair. And we just got to do the best we can. So all of this, I mean, that's a massive audience that you are able to reach theoretically through all three of those platforms. And you also, we hear a lot when people are uh, women and they are liberal about all of the awful things that people say to women who are liberal, right? Like, that's a big talking point in the world of sports media. Oh, my God, you could never imagine the things that people say to uh, to liberal women in the sports media on Twitter, Facebook, whatever else. You get that times 100, I imagine, and yet nobody I ever see out there saying, man, poor Tommy, she gets so much abuse as a woman, it's really not fair, right? Like, you don't get protected in any way. No, not at all. In fact, I've actually had people throw things at me, on me, when I'm with my parents, and people cheerlead that. They think it's so great, I'm getting what I deserve, blah, blah, blah. No, but you know what? I don't need their protection. I don't need the feminists to come to my defense. I just don't. And anybody who feels like a victim, I've never gotten up one day in my life and felt like a victim, even though things have been, you know, rocky for me sometimes, people have said horrible things. I'm not going to cry over it because at the end of the day, I chose this career. But the double standard really is the only standard of the left, and it's quite apparent. It is amazing. Now, I talked about, you know, the way that people respond and how you can handle things. And part of, look, I'm 41. I'm, I'm quite a bit older than you. And I've got three kids. I've got a wife. I I have sort of a universe outside of what I do for a living. So I really do not care because at times, you know, I'm coaching flag football or I'm at a, you know, basketball coaching or whatever, you know, like I'm involved in my kids' lives. And so there is an escape for me. Do you think it's better or worse to be single and be in the middle of these battles every single day? Do you ever wonder, man, I wish I could just dial out 
and 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 have like a serious boyfriend or a husband or whatever like how do you get away from the noise for lack of a better way of phrasing it and do you think it's better or worse to be single as a part of it well, Clay, you've met my friend, so you know I have a good old time here in Nashville, Tennessee. Yes. <laughs> that is my way of getting is escaping it. And, you know, some people, they're hard on me for that because they hate the fact that I'll go on Instagram and post boomerangs at the bar with my friends on the weekend. But I'm still a 28-year-old girl. I still have fun. Oh, shudder at the fact. You know, I drink beer and I have fun with my friends and we sing karaoke at Miss Kelly's and we hang out at Winners and Losers almost every weekend. That is my escape. To me, social media is this fictitious little place that I go and I work and I care about, but you got to check out. And I have a lot of fun in Nashville, way more fun than I had in California. And I still remind myself that I'm still just a 28 year old average girl. And that is how I feel. And that is how I act. And I think that's why I'm relatable. I think that's why people take a liking to me on social media, because they see that I'm not just invested in politics 24 seven. I have a life. I go out, I have fun. And I think we should all be doing that, especially with everything going on right now. You know, if the mayor lets us. But don't get that nighttime <laughs> COVID because it comes out after 11 p.m. in our curfew, you know. Be sure to catch live editions of Outkick the Coverage with Clay Travis weekdays at 6 a.m. Eastern, 3 a.m. Pacific. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape. You can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So, listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and challenge all-star. And speaking of all-stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of challenge champion. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I know people are listening in all different cities and states right now, but in Nashville in particular, where you and I both live, I believe the bars have to be closed by 11 o'clock right now. It's almost like COVID only spreads at, you know, after 11 because the bars can be open all day, restaurants as well. And we're talking to Tommy Laren, and she is, uh, you can find her on all these different places. I don't even need to tease it because she's got so many people on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, but you can find her uh, easily there. So you're in Nashville now, and I've been out. I've seen you interact with people. People want photos. It's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty fun environment, friendly environment so far that I've seen. I'm sure there are exceptions. But in general, how would you assess the way that people treat you out in public in Nashville compared to L.A.? 
night and day difference from L.A., and I think the reason for that is it's not because everybody in Nashville is conservative. You and I both know that's not the case. But the liberals that might hate me, they don't feel as emboldened to come up and say something to me like they would in L.A. And I'll tell you, in L.A., I have been pushed. I have been kicked. I have been tripped. I've been shouted down because they know that probably 95 percent of the people in the place are going to encourage that because they know that they have a liberal monopoly. So they feel very strong and really a powerful. In Nashville, that's not the case. There are many liberals that are brave enough to come up and say something if they know that perhaps there'll be five other conservatives nearby. So people are pretty nice to me here. Plus, I just hang out in places that conservatives are. If you guys come to Nashville, you have to go to Winners and Losers. That's where I frequent, and people are very nice to me there. A lot of patriots, a lot of military, a lot of law enforcement, and I just love in Nashville. Winners and losers is a lot of fun. Steve Ford has got great places there and Irv and everybody else. Uh, that's been a staple for local Nashvillians for a long time in Midtown. Now, what happens next? So you're only 28, and it's amazing how quickly you have developed a large audience. You've been in rap. Let me, let me, before I get to what happens next, what is to you the craziest thing that has happened to you since you left UNLV where it's only been seven years basically since you started working in media but it feels like a lifetime because so much craziness has happened what is the wildest thing in your experience that has happened in your career where you had to pinch yourself and you were like I can't believe this is going on probably when I had simultaneous feuds with both Nicki Minaj and Cardi B. Uh, That's probably not something I ever thought would happen, especially since the two of them don't like each other, but they seem to bond over hating me. (laughs) So that was an interesting time. How did that happen? Uh, How did Nicki Minaj uh, and Cardi B just come after you? Yeah, so Cardi B, uh, I had said she had made a video talking about how much she hates Donald Trump, some kind of a just kind of a fumbling mess video. And I tweeted that, oh boy, look at, here's the political genius of our generation. And then she told me that she was going to dog walk me. And she's tweeted at me several times since then. And then Nicki Minaj, um, I had said something about immigration and she basically told me that, you know, I'm not from here and I'm not Native American. So I had a, a few with both of them kind of around the same time. Very interesting, a very weird place to be. I think about every rapper has had an issue with me at one point or another. <laughs> Interesting. But How many I rap songs have you been now. in? How many rap songs have you been name-checked mm-hmm. in? There's a couple at least, right? There's at least two. One of them my voice is in. That's the Jay-Z song. For those that want to listen to Drug Dealers Anonymous by Pusha T and Jay-Z, my voice is in that one. And then... I was in a Wale song where he calls me Tammy. And so, of course, as you know, that's why people call me Tammy, because he called me Tammy Lauren. And that's my, I guess that's my new um, pseudonym. I I don't know. But I've been in at least two and then a handful of other smaller ones. What is it like to hear your name in a rap song? It's very surreal. I don't think that anybody growing up in Rapid City, South Dakota, thinks that they're going to be known or mentioned by some of the biggest rappers you know, in the industry. So it's surreal, but I just, I guess I'm doing something right. I mean, I love rap music, so I'll take it. So that would surprise some people who are listening right now because they're, they would listen and they would think, oh, uh, I think at least the expectation would be that you are not a fan of pop culture or you're not engaged with what is being produced in Hollywood and whatnot, but that's not really true, right? Like you are, and and, and I think you believe, and I, I think you're probably right, that there are many people like you who will vote for Donald Trump and also love, let's say, the Real Housewives or uh, or would carry a gun and also like rap music as a you know as a Trump voting conservative right like that 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 cross pollination is occurring and I think the stereotype would be that it isn't. Well, the reason that I talk about pop culture is because I understand pop culture. I am a consumer of pop culture, so I love it. I as you mentioned, I love the Housewives. I love Bravo. I I don't think it caters to conservative women, and I don't think conservative women sometimes feel like they have a place in it, but we still watch it. We still listen. You know, you can be conservative and still watch Andy Cohen and tune out at the liberal parts, and you can still listen to rap music and enjoy all these 
singers and people would be surprised to know I like Jay-Z. I like Beyonce. I listen to their music. I think they're crazy, but I like their music. And you can still have those opinions and appreciate that, even if you don't agree with someone politically. And uh, conservative women and conservatives in general, yeah, we're still viewers, by the way. I think that, you know, NFL and sports are, are starting to realize that maybe now. Oh, I, I don't think there's any doubt. So I asked this question before, what's next? So you are 28 years old. You have gone from OAN to The Blaze to Fox News. A lot of people would say, oh, that's the, that's the gold standard, right, for any conservative commentator to reach Fox News. You're at Fox Nation, and you have a monstrous social media following across Instagram, Twitter, Facebook for people that are engaging with your opinions, either agreeing or disagreeing. What's next for you? What do you want? What would you like to do? You know, I don't know the answer to that question because I don't like to plan things out because it never really turns out the way I planned anyway. If there's anything I've learned from my career is that I really can't have that much of a plan. But I will tell you this. I'm always going to be me. I'm always going to tell it like it is. And it'll be the coldest day in hell, the day that I stop being me and I cater or kowtow to anybody. So I'm just going to keep doing this. I'm really excited to see the results of this election. We'll see where that puts us as a nation. But I'm going to keep doing what I'm going to do. And I think what's so important is, is having fearless voices out there who, despite who's president or who's being elected or what the election year is or the political climate, that just tell like it is and are fearless and never apologize. I'm just going to keep doing that wherever it takes me. Here I am. One week from today, basically, is the election. You think that Trump will win. If Trump loses, how does it change your career path, if at all? Have you even thought about that? Is it better or worse for you, depending on whether he wins and loses, or ultimately for what you do, does the president really matter? I worry less about my career, and I I worry more about all the average Americans out there that are going to be crushed under a Biden, let's be real, Harris administration. So I worry about them, but I am very confident in this president. I know that the left is going to do whatever they have to do through cheating, voter fraud, to try to win this election and then maybe pack the courts, whatever that shisty crap they want to pull. But I think that the silent majority is going to come out in such strong numbers that we're going to even overwhelm that. So I'm very, very confident in another four years of Donald Trump. It's after that that we have to worry about. You're only 28. I know I said that was one of my last questions, but do you have any interest at all in ever running for political office yourself? The only thing I think I would run for, and this would be a while because I got to get acclimated, but you know how much I dislike this mayor in Nashville. (laughs) So if I was here long enough and I felt like I could do a good job for Nashville, I might step up to the plate for that. But everything else, quite frankly, I have way too much fun hanging out with my friends and going to the bars on the weekend. I really don't want a life in public office. (laughs) That is Tommy Lahren. Uh, This has been fantastic. What else? Is there anything else you would like to tell people who are out there listening that maybe you haven't gotten enough? Let me take a step back. People who listen to this podcast a lot have heard me say this before. When I was doing depositions, I used as a when I was a practicing attorney, I used to like to ask the question at the end. Was there anything you wish that I had asked you that gives you an opportunity to talk to an audience and tell someone something that otherwise you haven't been able to? And I always got such interesting answers sometimes doing that, and I've translated it to uh, this life as well. Was there anything else you would like for the audience listening to us right now to know about you that they don't or that I haven't given you an opportunity to talk about here? I guess my piece of advice to anybody listening, whether on the left or the right or they're a sports fan or a political fan or a Donald Trump supporter, I would just remind them, never apologize when you're right. Always apologize when you're wrong, but never apologize when you're right. I've never done it. I never will do it. (laughs) Especially don't apologize for an opinion. I always say the only thing I'll uh, acknowledge getting wrong is a fact because it can lead to an opinion that I don't have the same basis for that I thought I did before. But this idea that you have to constantly bend at the altar of submission to all the people who are losers sitting around on social media all day is patently absurd. Tommy, I know we talk are going to talk. Some people may be coming in to listen to this podcast through the Fox Nation interview. Uh, I look forward to that and I look forward to, uh, to seeing you around the city of Nashville and maybe helping you with your mayoral campaign one day. <laughs> all right, deal. Sounds good. I'll probably see you at Losers. 
<laughs> for sure. That is Tommy Loren. I encourage you to go follow her if you're not already one of the millions of people who are following her. I am Clay Travis. This has been the Wins and Losses podcast, the 36th different interview and long-form conversation. I hope you're enjoying them. If you enjoyed this one, I'd encourage you to check out some of the others. Thanks for hanging with us on Wins and Losses. I'm Clay Travis, and she is Tommy Loren, and we appreciate the time. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.